he has some just absolutely savage burns, especially in the religion section. Like, he does not like televangelists. What was his religious conviction? Was he religious at all? I couldn't quite tell. At the very least, respected Christianity quite deeply, if not a believer. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's definitely secular. There's articles here. The secular C.S. Lewis. Um, somebody mentioned that he, he may have been religious without being observant, but oh. he was he was very positive towards religion and definitely, so definitely, if, uh, yeah. So I wonder if it's similar it. to uh, Richard Weaver, where like sees a lot of public good coming from it, but just can't quite get himself in. Well, we do know that he had a son, so he wasn't as quite a loser loner as Richard Weaver. But... Touche. <laughs> Touche. And see, that's why we have it recording in the background. <laughs> we do know that Richard, that, uh, uh, what is this guy's name? Neil Postman. This is why I'm not introducing it. <laughs> At least we know that Neil Postman had sex, but we don't know that about Richard Weaver. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he did. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And here we are with yet another belated episode, because as fate, chance, and the gods of chaos would have it, uh, we recorded this episode before and then deleted it, but we're going to swiftly move past uh, whose fault that was and move into, uh, what are you drinking right now, Sam? Well, Brevin, remind us first, before I say it, how long does it, how long do you have to download this before it deletes itself? Well, uh, okay, so, I mean, I don't want to get into too much detail, but we do have this this pretty fancy technology uh, where it will maintain a copy of the recording for seven days, and I have to download it at any point from the moment we finish to seven 24-hour periods later. I have all I have all of that time to download. And if you don't download it, it, it gets deleted. Anyone has has could download it, in theory, because, I mean, yeah, anyone could, could download it. I'm drinking a nice pour of Johnny Walker's Red Label Scotch. It's cheap, but it's really good. Horribly underrated, I think. And you don't feel bad drinking it, which is which is good. So, yeah. Classy stuff. And uh, Stephen, how about yourself? Uh, I am drinking a lovely glass of Evan Williams. Uh, I'm out of ice, or I, I moved, so I don't have an ice tray, uh, so that's unfortunate. Uh, but it has a, a little, a few bitters in there. Uh, I t- took a cue from Sam. So, Evan Williams with bitters. Well, damn, I'm the... Philistine, because I just have uh, water this evening. I I feel I don't deserve your company. Apparently, oh, well, I so I was considering just having tea or water or something like that. But you guys gave me such a hard time last time when I when I showed up like a chump with something non-alcoholic, and so I was like, nope, nope, not gonna do it again. Gotta gotta have some whiskey. I even swung by the store to pick some up. That was my thought. I'm like, Steven's gonna have like I don't know tea with a drop of lime juice in it or you know water that's been lightly dusted by orange peel uh so like you know i i I thought i would be safe but i guess not Revan, i know the layout of your office you've got like alcohol within an arm's length of you fine fine i have a quarter fifth of habanero vodka how about that how does that you're just drinking that whole thing i'm just drinking that straight how about that that just sounds painful especially the habanero bit it mm-hmm. would be. Uh, it but you know what else is painful? What dying. Else is painful? Dying is painful, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And you, but there, you know, there are better and worse ways to die. And arguably, one of the best ways to die would be 
amusing ourselves to death, which, what do you know, happens to be the topic of this episode. Oh my goodness, wouldn't you know? Part two, two of two, wrapping it all, pulling it all together in a nice amusing ourselves to death bow. Uh, Steven, why don't you take a side? I'll, I'll cue us up, absolutely. So just a reminder to our audience, because it has been a minute since we lasted uh, part one, uh, central to the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is the statement, the medium is the metaphor. And what Postman means by this is that the medium of the form of communication changes the content. It changes the very form of the conversation. And a conversation being the set of stories, the set of uh, dialogue that the, that, that the country is having or that a society is having with itself. Uh, he uses an extreme example to get this point across, that of uh, the medium of a smoke, uh, of smoke signals. That uh, when you are doing smoke signal, you can indeed communicate with people, but that form, or that, that medium of communication makes it impossible to do something like a philosophical treatise. You would burn down an entire wood bec- before you even got past your introduction paragraph. And so, similarly... You can't do various things like political philosophy or high-level debate on television. At least this is his claim. And he argues quite compellingly for this. Uh, this the, the form of television works against the content of something like political philosophy or ethics or a- anything that's a, that's a serious form. Uh, similarly, and this is a, a big part of his claim in part one, is that writing, on the other hand, it freezes speech. It renders the mutable immutable, and that was a big change from an oral to a writing history, or sorry, from an oral to a writing civilization or to a reading civilization. And he makes the note that in the 1800s, America was actually very literate, and everyone kind of accepted reading as the primary form of communication. And that led to phenomena like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which lasted seven hours, uh, with people standing in rapt attention as people gave very detailed and eloquent arguments over the issue of slavery. Imagine a political debate now. It lasts an hour and a half, goes over six topics or so, and each speaker has about five minutes, and afterwards, typically the play-by-plays are not who argued more compellingly, but who looked more powerful, who conducted themselves uh, better. And we'll, we'll get more into the, the weeds with that, but that's, that's a lot of his queuing up uh, in part one. Uh, one thing to uh, we, we have to be careful about is two things that he wants to make clear. One, he's not saying that writing is perfect. He's not saying that writing does not generate nonsense. He's, he goes so far as to say that you could fill the Grand Canyon with the amount of uh, books that have been written that are just utter, utter dribble. Uh, also, he has no issue with uh, the, 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 television, the junk of television, no more than he has issue with the, the junk of books. Um, and a quote that's worth reading in full, quote, And so, I raise no objection to television's junk. The best things on television are its junk, and no one and nothing is seriously threatened by it. Besides, we do not measure as a culture by, oh, sorry, we do not measure a culture by its output of undisguised trivialities, but by, but by what it claims as significant. Therein is our problem, for television is at its most trivial and, therefore, most dangerous when its aspirations are high when it presents itself as a carrier of important cultural conversations, end quote. And that's, I think that's really getting at the thrust of what this book is, is that television is trying to be the center of cultural conversations, and it just doesn't work. It, it, it cannot work. Its, it's very uh, form prevents 
uh, it, it, from carrying on important cultural conversations, and it kind of it, it degrades them. Uh, it eats them so it eats them away. So with that, I say uh, let's hop into it. All right. So part two starts where the last one left off, extending the central idea of the medium as the metaphor. And the core way that Neil Postman does this is by speaking about the inherent bias that every technology communication medium has. He writes that you can use a TV set, you know, as any number of random objects, as a lamp, as a bulletin board, as a bookcase, as something to stand or sit on. But that's not the primary source. It has a purpose as a piece of technology that demands a physical response, namely looking at it. I just think every time I go into someone's living room and there's a giant TV in there, how much that is commanding and ruling over this space, which could be used for so many other things. Personal family house rule is we're going to try to not own a TV or at least not anywhere prominent. If that's the case, that the technology has a certain bias to it, both physically, but then also in the, in the way that it communicates in it. Uh, what is that? What is the bias and the agenda of TV that can't be separated from the medium and the physical object? And his argument is entertainment, that entertainment is the supra ideology of TV, that there's nothing so bad that you couldn't tune in again tomorrow to hear more about it. And he talks about music as a motif for introducing news programs. And even if the news is the most catastrophic civil war the most depressing economic news, the most heinous crimes and murder, it will always be opened with a nice little jingle to tell you, hey, it's all right. Come on in. Let's all get entertained. Let's see what's happening in the world. And then they play us out. And so we're ready to come back in the next day. Even the most savage news is rendered palatable. The only counterexample I can think of with this was uh, newscasters reacting to 9-11. And you can find clips of this on YouTube. I think in particular, Stephen Colbert has um, has one. And you can tell, I mean, he's, he's, even back then, he's, he's a comedian. He's supposed to keep it light, keep it happy. And you can tell how deeply disturbed he is by this. And there is kind of a lowering of the facade. However, I would contend that this is the exception that makes the rule. Um, it took an attack on American soil. In fact, one in a lot of these newscasters' backyards to actually get them to break the entertainment facade. And that entertainment facade was only dropped for a handful of minutes, and then pretty much it was the show must must go on. Um, and so, if anything, that kind of affirms the idea that this is entertainment. The show must go on. That's an entertainment axiom. Exactly. And you can see the comparison with recent things. Uh, you know, the, there's an, an excellent clip you can search up as well of uh, reporters, I believe it's on CNN, breathlessly reporting about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and talking about how Kiev is in inherent danger. You know, there are paratroopers landing at the airport as we speak, and then it cuts to an Applebee's commercial. And it's like, okay, so we we can see what the level of seriousness that we're meant to take this, if this is truly uh, what we're being treated to. So television is entertainment, is his contention, which means that anything that it tries to convey will also be framed by or as entertainment. There's no escaping the fact that when you sit down in front of a TV, it is to, it is to be entertained. And this creates problems when you try and pretend that it's something else like serious news or religion or, any, or politics, which we will get into all of these uh, in a moment later. Along with this, though, and to sort of update Postman a little bit for the modern age, uh, I'm just curious if if you, because I do have some ideas, what would you say is the supra ideology of the internet or or other certain platforms, if you have any in mind? It's interesting that I, I recall when I read this the first time that I almost got kind of moderately hopeful when I saw the, the 
uh, internet, or when I saw the medium of the internet in that it's very word oriented. You read most things. Um, now there are certain platforms like YouTube and, and what have you that are still mostly picture oriented, but Facebook, Reddit, I, these are very, you know, you, you read more than you see. Uh, I guess Instagram would be something a little bit more uh, picture oriented again, YouTube, but it kind of the moment I got hopeful, the moment I al was also one that I realized like, nope, that's actually a pale imitation. Even let's, Let's take the strongest of them, Reddit. Reddit is a few pictures, but mostly long-form discussion. Long-form, quote-unquote, being like a handful of paragraphs. I think the longest I ever saw was maybe like, if you copy-pasted all of them, maybe like a page or two. Uh, like all of his string of, uh, of comments. That is not enough to do any form of serious discussion. That's enough to have a conversation, and there's nothing wrong with the conversation. But the problem with Reddit is that it it has all the trappings of intel intelligent discussion because it looks like it's long form uh, conversations, but it's really not. It's actually very uh, it's very shallow. And with all of the internet, I think the medium is infinity. It's you can always scroll for more. You can always get more content. And Reddit is no exception. Facebook is no exception. Twitter is certainly no exception. All all of this is. I would say more than pictures, it's infinity. Yeah, it's, I, I, I like that. I, I would agree there. And maybe it's not like the super ideology, but like immediacy, right? You have everything. You have this idea of knowledge, but it's not really knowledge in the traditional sense of like you honing an understanding and a comprehension, not only a comprehension, but a con contextual grasp of a subject. It's knowing how to search for it and recall it from a vast database. And so it's all it's all immediate it's all disembodied i mean even less than like a book or or even television where it's a screen but at least there's something going on there it's just information so i'm not sure that constitutes a super ideology but i think it's close and maybe I, don't, I don't think the internet resolves the problem maybe a sub super ideology when you yeah. said that the concept is infinity i was instantly struck by the button that you can click you know top posts of all time and it's like oh yeah that's that's a lot of posts there to rank from the absolute top to the absolute bottom mm -hmm. uh, two more brief brief things on this uh one one line in here that was a little bit personally convicting and i and it got me thinking about podcasts as a as a medium although if you really had to get technical you might have to say that they're mediated mostly by cell phones which would be their own or you know the modern cell phone which is a handheld computer that happens to have a calling function it, that's the actual technology. Then podcasts are, are 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 a subset of that. Uh, but but he has this 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 great little quote. Uh, quote: Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images, which just describes pretty much all of podcasting. Uh, which is yeah, which is fantastic. Um, and there's there's one other great great line in here just to again to illustrate the degree to which TV is entertainment at its core even when it's pretending to be news or politics or something serious he proposes a thought experiment that he stops in the middle of his paragraph and stop and starts to shill for you know two or three sentences about united airlines and this would be unacceptable you can't do that in the middle of a serious reasoned book that would show that he's not taking the matter seriously but when that happens but brevin, in... but brevin do you know what you should take seriously internet security and you know what can help you with that? NordVPN. That's right. Our first sponsor is NordVPN, the number one worldwide leader in internet home security. 
Yeah, man, I wish we had a sponsor. Uh, but yeah, but, be nice, it? but Sam, you, you how fast you we would sell out? Here. We would sell out so fast, ladies and gentlemen. We would. <laughs> Sam, this. Sorry, what was that? Oh, it's me. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think of um, when this when this breaks into real life. Um, one of the more I would say sad, but also humorous examples of this was the March for Life a couple of years ago, where they had Ben Shapiro speaking. Fine you know, conservative leader talking at a conservative event, whatever. And midway through his speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, he stops and delivers an ad because this is going to be this is being recorded. They play on his podcast and he has a deal where he has to play a certain number of ads on the podcast. Um, and it was just, it was just without missing a beat. Very strange. Uh, and maybe there's, there's more problems going on there. But I think it definitely shows the prevalence of, of commercials and where it just becomes so, so ingrained in our discourse. Trying to, uh, I guess, steel man this uh, as opposed to straw manning. And about the, the closest rebuttal I can think of is like, well, wait a second. Newspapers have advertisements and that formula is writing. And, and we don't consider that strange. And advertisements on newspapers have been around since newspapers have been around. However, even as I say that, I immediately think, well, sure, there are advertisements, but it's in between the columns. Like, they don't interrupt mm-hmm. the columns themselves. So you read your, your news article, and then you see an advertisement, or you see it in the margins, but it's not interrupting the flow of the content itself. It's still, the, the, the medium of writing really does emphasize linearity, uh, like clear flowing sentences that advertisements, it just doesn't work. No one would read that oh, yeah. newspaper if it was constantly interrupting itself. Well, yeah, and newspaper ads were, uh, were inherently trying to inform, right? They're trying, I mean, you read ads in like the 40s and 50s, and it's like saying, we have the best washing machines, the best soda pop you can have. Okay, that's information, right? Let's say it's giving me data. I need to go, I need to go try this device. I need to go buy this because they say it is, it does this certain thing well. Um, and I'll get into this in my section later, but the current I ads, well, I mean, I guess maybe less broadcast ads, but definitely ads on television, they're more image-based. It's more, you want to, you want to be seen in this way, not you need, you need this thing in a concrete way. Trevor, what were you going to say? I think you're being a little generous to, to, to old timey ads. Cause like, yes, there were ones that were like, uh, we invented a brand new wife to clean your clothes so you don't need to get one but then there were also the ads that you know were like want to lose uh five five pounds and your husband isn't giving you your your fifth child try the new chocolate and cocaine diet uh it we promise it works so just just uh noting that the grifters are are, have been among us for all time well it's not a matter of the grifters being among us i mean certainly they've always been they've always been among us since you know the dawn of history there was there was one particular that offered a woman an apple and we've been paying that consequence ever since well so i i was going to reference uh what simon the magician and you beat me out by an an order of magnitude well played (laughs) um but i think it's the medium of the grift uh the grift right now is we're going to interrupt the most serious news we can come up with ukraine we're going to interrupt it with an applebee's ad uh, and the there is no interruption with a newspaper. There can't be. It just doesn't work. Even a magazine, which is like a tackier newspaper and has a lot more kind of like glossy, just grab your attention at advertisements, they're not interrupting their own articles. Like, I mean, you sure, they'll put it in the margin and it will be distracting, but it's not like they are breaking the flow of the, of the article. And I think that's the important thing yeah. that I'm getting at. Well, and it would also be interesting to look into this 
I mean, it would be it was something like separate research would need to be done. Probably has, but on like the the um, keywords or even like promises that advertisements make. Because uh, I guess the point I was trying to make earlier that I think I made pretty poorly was that like old ads. You know, it's like you have a problem. Here's a solution to this problem. Now it's much more. Who do you want to be? What's your identity going to be? What's your image going to be? And so even like magazine ads. They're very much identity based. It's, it's going to be a, a striking image to make you want to relate to it and want to be seen that way. And therefore, you're going to buy the product. But that is using the language and the epistemology of commercials, not necessarily old timey ads. That makes me wonder, is it is it primarily a function of the medium or is it a function of advertising? Is It's just developed as a science. And that there would be a way to go back in time and make those advertisements not about logic and uh, like linear reasoning, but rather about identity or what have you. But even then, like, well, I think that good I luck. think Postman would say that the vis- the visual leaps of television is what mm-hmm. made that shift. That yeah. was what that was that was the shift was the visual leap, not necessarily a, a psychological revolution. Yeah, I I don't think the writing just doesn't really, especially for the kind of the cheap things that advertisements are doing it just doesn't really translate to writing like you're not going to be able to argue someone or you're not going to be able to write about the identity of drinking coca-cola like it but you can make a you can easily make a television commercial showing a particular lifestyle that's all subtly related to drinking coca-cola but try to write that you're going to come across as a joke i also think and maybe we can return to this later after we get through the main bit but i also think that there's some interesting thought work to be done around the convergence of all these things, um, especially with the internet sort of collapses all things into itself. TV is now streaming, which has the same infinity function as Facebook, as Reddit, as Twitter, as everything on the internet, simply because of the way that the internet works. And that function of technology, he also brings up, just pass this off to uh, to pass this off to Stephen, is uh, he talks about the invention of the telegraph and how that was sort of a precursor to television and the telegraph giving rise to this idea of trivia that is little bits of information that are not relevant to your daily life that come from across the country you've gotten two sentences about something of something that happened today it's flashy it's relevant it's the biggest thing that happened and it matters absolutely nothing for your life how do we possibly categorize all of this random disconnected unrelated context-free facts well it's trivia it's good to know trivia it's good to be informed about the world and he uh, has this this quote uh, talking about a radio station in New York. He says, uh, quote, radio station WINS entreats its listeners to give us 22 minutes and we'll give you the world. This is said without irony and its audience, we may assume, does not regard the slogan as the conception of a disordered mind, end quote. And so this disordered mind that technology can bring about in the way that it conveys information, in addition, uh, can affect our religion. And so with that, I hand over. Yeah, I'll uh, take it away again. Uh, so Postman goes into a, uh, yeah, his section on religion, and he opens it up with saying that he watched 42 hours of religious programming. I realized very quickly he probably probably could have gotten away with like two hours of uh, watching. That poor man must have suffered. Um, and he walked away with two. That's tables. why I hate televangelists so much. It's not necessarily the the form or the, the or the philosophy behind it. It's just that he had to sit and listen to him for forty two hours. Yeah, jeez, that's that's uh, yeah. I can't imagine that. It's just so tacky. It's just so. Oh man, yeah, that would jade you. Uh, 
So the two takeaways, uh, one, it is like everything else, entertainment. Uh, quote, everything that makes religion a historic, profound, and sacred human activity is stripped away. There is no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, and above all, no sense of spiritual transcendence. On these shows, the preacher is top, uh, tops. God comes out as second banana, end quote. And two, while there are certainly moronic television preachers, there are plenty who are equals to the great ministers of old, but they inadvertently become the enemy of religious experience due to the nature of the medium. Um, in this passage, uh, I, I originally uh, was, was saying at the, the last podcast that unfortunately got deleted, I said that um, this is the only account from anyone that I respect who holds that Jonathan Edwards is uh, belonging to a group of men, quote, of great learning, theological subtlety, and powerful exposition skills, end quote. The only thing I was aware from him was Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, and my goodness, it's just a piece of garbage theology that positions God as this kind of monstrous, like, demiurge. Uh, but I was actually speaking with Brevin's father-in-law, who is a, a theologian, and, I mean, a Catholic theologian, like, he's not particularly endeared to any of the you know great protestant ministers or what have you but i i brought it up and he said like no jonathan edwards was actually quite brilliant um and like very dedicated to his craft like it died testing himself uh or testing smallpox immunizations on himself uh to to, to help others uh and also was like apparently a very gifted theologian that unfortunately sinners in the hand of an angry god just became his most well-known track and like it, that's unfortunately become his legacy, but he was actually quite uh, talented. So I apologize to Jonathan Edwards for thinking so little of him over these last years. Uh, so on the note of uh, the medium of re uh, TV, its effect on religion, first let's take a step back and say, what, what are the requirements for religious experience? And Postman says that one of the biggest is uh, consecrating the space, that uh, churches and synagogues are the obvious choice. Um, and any activity, sacred or secular, will be haunted by the holiness of that place. Even if it's just something as simple as like a bingo game or whatever, it's still being done in a church and you just can't quite escape the fact that it is. As somebody who you know was in youth group and whatnot and played dodgeball in churches, I, I, I can heartily agree with that. It was still done in a church and there was something haunted about it. Um, but he's also quick to say you can also render sacred uh, secular location by an action as simple as hanging a cross or, or lighting a candle um, certain rules are going to be enforced, such as no eating, you need to wear certain clothes, remove shoes. But no, you can't do this over television. It just doesn't work. Um, and I mean, I recall going to Pos quote unquote, going to Pasca service over television. And yeah, it, it, it just doesn't work. Um, and one of the things also that's kind of disturbing and really disrupts any sort of religious experience they're going to have is you're intensely aware of the fact that with the flip of the switch, you can just turn off the religious experience or switch it to anything, uh, a cartoon or a sports game or, or what have you. It, it just disrupts. It just doesn't work. He kind of walks away with the conclusion that the spectacle that we find in true religions has at its main purpose enchantment. We want to see the world enchanted. We want to see the world for what it is, an enchanted place, not entertainment. And that distinction is critical. Uh, he has the full quote, uh, the spectacle we find in true religions has at its purpose enchantment, not entertainment. The distinction is critical by endowing things with magic. Enter enchantment is the means through which we may gain access to sacredness. Entertainment is the means through which we distance ourselves from it. And he walks out of this uh, quoting Hannah Arendt, who asks, can authors survive the entertaining version of themselves? And he says, we must ask uh, the same of religion. So his next chapter is on the epistemology of television. 
And I mean, he's been talking about that the entire time. But this is where he really digs into how it applies to modern politics. Uh, his chapter is called Reach Out and Elect Someone. And he starts off with um, equating politics to being the modern uh, sports. We watch politics just like we watch sports. Uh, interestingly enough, Ronald Reagan described politics as show business, which, again, plays right into Postman's argument. What's the difference between show business, television, sports, all that? It's all coming together. Um, television is not necessarily a pursuit of excellence. Or po- <clears throat> Sorry, let me frame that. Politics on television is not no longer a pursuit of excellence, but rather it's pursuing the appearance of the pursuit of excellence. And the television commercial is the culmination of this style. The commercial embodies a new epistemology. Quote, the credibility of the teller is the ultimate test of the truth of the proposition. Credibility here does not refer to the past record of the teller for making statements that have survived the rigors of reality testing. It refers only to the impression of sincerity, authenticity, vulnerability, or attractiveness, choose one or more, conveyed by the actor reporter, end quote. Uh, at this point, he argues that commercials are what are determining the winners of elections, not arguments. And he looks back into his own experience where there was a brief moment in time where he actually helped run a campaign for a uh, New York local official, uh, an incumbent, who was doing very well in the polls, had very reasonable positions. And this man was absolutely beat out by his opponent, who in um, Postman's eyes had very poor policies or little to no uh, policy plan but it had really good commercials. This man blasted commercials everywhere, and Postman, Postman's campaign, the campaign he was running, lost. Uh, he says that, quote, America had accommodated themselves to the philosophy of television commercial. Commercials, he argues, are like parables. They convey knowledge via a series of pictures, not words. Um, and let me, I just got this bit. He then takes a bit of a tangent here and goes into the history of um, politics in the later half of the 19th century, looking at how political parties were initially very powerful, giving the example of his father, who voted exclusively Democrats, um, even, even knowing that the person he was voting for was not the right man for the job. We've now shifted to looking for who's the right man for the job. And Postman argues that this actually might not be the best thing ever. The reason for that is because what the best man, what, what the right man for the job means is what's the right man for us. It's not necessarily who's needed for the country. And so people are voting in terms of self-interest. That self-interest being what makes me feel the best? What kind of image do I want to embody? Who do I want to see myself voting for? Not which party will best serve the needs of my community. From this, Postman argues that our sense of history unravels because we're no longer looking at the historical tradition of different political arguments, different schools of thought, and which one we think should govern us in a democracy. But we're looking at what, who do I feel like voting for? Who do I like the most? Which is exactly what Huxley predicted would happen via benign technology. Uh, yeah, just a, a bit about the the disappearing history, because that's obviously part of um, 1984, is the explicit curation and memory holding of events but then huxley's is just that people forget purposely and they are just it's drowned out by other uh technologies and and other nonsense information um and he has a a great line just talking about americans as uh, agitated amnesiacs uh which not only is evocative of one of walker percy's best pieces of writing uh bourbon neat 
and it also describes most of our political discourse, frankly. But I would say that in, in, in terms of the, you know, the Huxleyan benign loss of information, loss of context, disappearing history, we really kind of have the worst of all possible worlds, where we have it from both directions. You have people who are just people who are constantly inundated with information that is constantly rotating out and replacing the past as quickly as it can be written and making it so that there's this, you know, hellish eternal present. But at the same time, you also have just with the way that modern technology has started to be set up in in some ways with centralization um, in in some senses in social media networks or in the way that financial networks set up or the way that um, internet networks are set up where you have not that it's centralized versus decentralized, but that it's hub and spoke, that there are places where you can cut off whole big swaths of information all at once that create the danger from both sides is you can both have a people who stop caring but you can also have people who can pull the plug uh, if if right. they really wanted to. Uh, so quite the quite the exciting world that we have to work with. The the amnesiac uh, it it does bring to mind uh, our one of our favorite quotable people, uh, McGilchrist, uh, in, in that this does seem the, the the left hemisphere does not like context. Uh, it likes particular facts that are kind of disassociated and the right hemisphere is that that is the job of the right hemisphere to integrate everything and it seems that tv really is the tv and you know i, I actually say fully uh the internet is encouraging this sort of behavior behavior both a decontextualizing of history or an erasing of history the the left hemisphere also is not known to be a huge fan of history but then also we we've discussed the uh decontextualization of facts uh with regards to both the uh the internet and tv and it does seem that this is fitting right in with McGilchrist's take as well yeah and that does lead directly i mean Brevin, what you're saying there leads directly into his last chapter on education i found this one out of out of all four of these applications uh probably the least interesting but he makes some good points he, he basically views education um through the lens of sesame street and um how Sesame Street is entirely embraced by children, parents, and educators. But Sesame Street isn't teaching kids to love learning like many educators uh, say that it is. It's teaching kids to love watching television and to only love learning if it looks like television. And what that leads to is education looks like um, entertainment, looks like television, and you're ultimately not able to grasp it because it's lacking, lacking that context. He goes on to say that television likely is impairing a student's ability to read far more than any banned books could. Because if you ban a book, you're banning that one book from from one school library. And a certain subset of students are going to be able to read that. But with, you know, raising kids practically from birth on Sesame Street, you're teaching them to not read any books. And then again, there's kind of that decentralization, centralization problem. You know, you're, you're, you're cutting it off from the consumer side. You're cutting off from the, the student side. And then it makes it very easy for the educators to control what they're consuming because there's no drive or even like intellectual will to branch out. Yeah, this was an interesting chapter, especially just kind of giving giving a moment for self-reflection on kind of like, what was my education like? And could I see this? And I mean, TV and movies weren't really a consistent theme throughout education, but there were a few classes where like you could tell when the teacher just didn't care for the day. They throw on a, uh, a ostensibly educational show, and the entire class would just tune out. Um, it's like it never 
assisted in educating. Um, I, I think of like old computer games. Um, and some of them ostensibly were math blasters, man, math blasters, um, ostensibly could like didn't harm, I guess, but like they were still the, the main thing was entertainment. And like you had, it was pretty much like entertainment and the tax was you had to learn something or you had to do some exercises that frankly, you probably would have been better off like being told, hey, you do 15 minutes of flashcards and then you get to play half hour video games or something like that. Or like a real game that's actually fun versus like, oh, well, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll play this, this crap because at least I get to play a game. Exactly. That's somewhat better than, than nothing. But, uh, you know, but it's and under the, the pretense of being educational. So, yeah, no, it, I think that that is something that's definitely trans, transferred into the modern, the modern world. Sure. I'm curious. Uh, like all my best experiences in like college, right? They were always the most entertaining professors. I, anyway. I'm curious for the um the the man in the room who has a child. What what are? I, I'm curious. Like, are you? Do you have any thoughts about what you're going to do with uh, regarding education and entertainment with uh, your daughter? Well, um, sort of. We're sort of thinking of um just finding a home as far as we can out in the Virginia countryside, doing kind of like our own little mini Mount Athos situation. Uh, so she actually won't meet um, anyone aside from her many siblings before she's like, I don't know, probably 24 or so. Um, and then in, in, in terms of uh, screens, she actually will not know what they are again until maybe 26 or so. We have to pray that CPS is not one of our listeners. <laughs> listen if 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 cps were were run by the right people they would be giving me more children to take care of no it, it is uh just like there just truly seems to be nothing redeeming about screens and basically as late as you could possibly move them back in a kid's life seems as about as good as they are but again they but they've in they've inundated uh all parts of life so it'll it'll be re- quite the fascinating um couple years next couple years here to, to to see how we manage to or 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 not manage to navigate that um but yeah uh no definitely all uh it, it, it's a perilous road to look down and realize you have to figure out how to not screw up a kid in in the the in the hellscape that that postman has uh that that he saw but didn't have to live through himself but that does more or less wrap up uh, what we had here. Uh, Steven, this was your recommendation, an excellent recommendation, I, I should say. Uh, any, any final words, words of benediction uh, that, that you want to take this book out on? I mean, on the whole, I, I think he's spot on. Huxley, Huxley was right, Orwell was wrong. Uh, Orwell raised interesting and good points. But at the end of the day, I think... Uh, he said it best that what we love is going to be what enslaves us, not what we hate. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I suppose there's there's something vaguely biblical about that of um, like where what, what is it uh, where your heart is there your treasure or where your treasure is there your heart will be also. And it seems that uh, Americans have put our treasure in entertainment, and you can tell that has had consequences. And so I think Postman is rightly pointing that out. What to do about it? Not the foggiest, but. Uh, I suppose the first step is knowing that there's a, a problem. Well, we know there are many problems, particularly with reading. Uh, we, we have been short on solutions th- thus far. All right. And with that, uh, that wraps up that book. Uh, so let's 
let's go right into rants. How about that? Uh, we know there are some listeners out there who only listen for the articles. We've actually been told by some of you that, like, you know, love the podcast, that, you know, maybe cut back on the book summary parts and, and more of the articles. So this is for you. We're going straight to rants. Yep, exactly. All right. Uh, Sam, why don't you take it away? Yeah. Um, so this was a recent event when we tried recording the first time uh, about a month ago, uh, but it's still very clear in my memory. And uh, it's about New York City. Uh, I love the city. I really, I really do. But when I moved here initially, I kind of thought the city was was softer than I expected it to be. Like it's it's it's, it's cleaned up its act overall um, compared to what I was expecting. With like you know getting beat up on the subway every day and like drug deals everywhere and like needing to to get the mob boss's protection like within the first week of living here. No mob bosses come to my door. Crazy. But um, there was an instance a few weeks ago that made me realize the city still has it. Um, my wife and I were getting up at about 4.30 in the morning to catch a catch a flight out of JFK. Um, and we're getting ready and we heard somebody banging on our the front door of our apartment building. We're on the first floor, like the first one after you you come into the building. So you can hear the uh, vestibule very clearly. There's someone banging on it. Um, after they buzzed every every apartment in the building they woke the entire building up then banged on the door for a while and then we heard the glass shattering and heard somebody walk in and go up the elevator i go outside to see a few cops are are super my neighbors and glass the glass window shattered somebody broke through the window walked in and then went upstairs i don't know what this person's game plan was because they woke the entire building up so we all heard them and there are security cameras. And by the time we, were, we, we left in an Uber, and when the Uber drove around the block and we were passing the building again, um, we saw the, the cops cuffing this guy. But it just really goes to show, like, the city still has it. It's still got that, that sense of, um, you know, that, that, that grittiness, that tough atmosphere. And I'm, I'm happy and proud to live in New York City. Good stuff. What I mean, place. I'm told that you haven't really made it until you're invited to the rat fighting rings, but you know, you've only you've been there for what, less than a year, year and a half? Almost a year. Almost a year. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure the invite will come soon. Um so come if soon. you hear yeah, yeah. If you if you hear like a, a, a small scratching at your door, like like I don't know, if if like someone taped a razor blade to a rat arm and it were like just sort of going at the base at, at your floorboards like just don't be alarmed that's that's just how they do it just follow it wherever it goes uh, as for my rant um i met a person at a conference and 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 she seemed instantly familiar which was weird because i had definitely never met her before and so i i tried to figure out where i just had like this instant like i don't know just this this soul bond i'm like i i know who you are as a person and there were a, a couple things that i could check out you know uh, she 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 was doing a PhD at Oxford. And our connection really started when she said that that her favorite pub was the Eagle and Child. And 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 even though this created our connection, uh, she is objectively wrong. It is like the worst pub in Oxford. There are so many better pubs in Oxford than the Eagle and, and Child, uh, legendary haunt of C.S. Lewis and Friends. Uh, the White Rabbit, King's Arms are clearly better. Even the Lamb and Flag uh, is, is, is also better. The Bird and the Baby, is not a good pub whatsoever, and in fact has a lot of things wrong with it, as Sam reminded me. So yeah, when I was there, I went there a couple times when I was in Oxford because tourists. But um, yeah, the second time I went, they they wouldn't take my ID. They were like, no, we don't take American IDs here. And so I had to order a Coca-Cola, which is ridiculous because the only people who ever go there are Americans. So 
Yeah, because British people hate C.S. Lewis. The, the only people who like him are Americans. So sure. it's, yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. So bad pub. She said it's her favorite, and I I knew her from ancestral memories. Uh, and 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 why is this the case? Well, it's because the Eagle and Child is a pilgrimage location, as I said, for C.S. Lewis. And then I saw that she went to Hillsdale. And then I realized I knew why I knew her. It's because we come from the same tribe. We come from the same the same bloodline, the 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 the, the same ancient order and tradition of American evangelicals obsessed with C.S. Lewis and uh, you know all that nonsense. The, the the movement, the bearing, the affect. If I started singing American, or sorry. If I started singing Amazing Grace, but that was a Freudian slip if there ever was Freudian one. <laughs> uh, but, but the rock version of Amazing Grace, I, I know for a fact that she would hum along right along with me. Uh, and I hated every minute of it. Steven, what is your rant, sir? I'm, I know you have several, but but pick your best shot here. I, I think I've landed on one. But incidentally, I, I am curious, Like, do Catholics not have a similar feeling given that Tolkien also frequented the Eagle and Child? Or is that like just distinctly an evangelical thing, which would be ironic given that most evangelicals don't like alcohol? I, I'm, I'm honestly not aware of it. Uh, Interesting. I think, honest, yeah. Like I, I mean, there are, man, there, are, there are certainly problems. I mean, well, there are Catholics who like C.S. Lewis, right? But oh, you know, everyone likes C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Like everyone wants yeah. to claim him for their own. Like I've talked to Catholics, Orthodox. Everyone is just like, oh no, but he was really like us, and it's just like he was writing basic Christian doctrine well, of course well, see, like but him. the difference is is is, is that evangelicals claim c.s lewis because he's the only person they can claim whereas catholics claim him because he sounds like everyone that they read anyway yeah, um i mean that's that's the, the long and short of it yeah and, and and as far as pubs that the catholics like i guess i wasn't catholic yet at that point so i don't have a definitive answer um but i would say probably top catholic pubs are any that uh serve beer so uh, but anyway uh your 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 rant there Okay, so I, I, I have a, a short rant, I think. Um, it's on the transitory nature of college. And Brevin, you and I did a short episode, uh, a transitory episode, as it were, on, uh, on graduating college. And I was reminded of kind of the transitory nature of things as uh, one of my fellow grad students has just gotten his PhD and his last day was today as he goes, uh, goes off into the, the wider world of postdoc. The, it's, it, you never end learning, I guess, um, which is good. Uh, but it, like, it, I mean, it was a it was a sad thing. I mean, like he and I had been building up sort of friendship, but it did remind me. It made me flash back to undergrad, kind of like making friends with people who were you know older than me and just kind of seeing them leave, and then making friends with people who were long, younger than me and kind of seeing the opposite of I am now saying goodbye to people and leaving. And I I remember this really hitting me hard in undergrad as kind of a microcosm of life, uh, and, and it really that was the first time it really slammed home that I was going to die someday. And uh, today was uh, a bit of a reminder of that. So a bit of somber reflection, but uh, memento mori, everyone. Memento mori. All right. Well, you know, all we can really hope for is to be amused on the way out. But then are you really living if you're just being amused to death? Listen, the purpose of life is to arrive amused at death. That's that's what I, that's the hill I'm going to die on. All right. A good, good hill to die on. But if it's a hill that you're dying on, is that a very amusing thing? For everyone here at the Problem with Reading <laughs> podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, amuse yourself into the evening. And into death.
you know, I, I, I was realizing this the other day that you say for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast and then say, I'm Brevin, I'm Steven, I'm Sam. That is everyone here. We are not representing a larger party. Yeah, I have one of that too. Who's to say? Listen, we are Legion. I am Legion personally. I don't know about you all, but I, I, I vaguely assume that you are that you all are are, are also Legion. No, mm. but like every little bit of, of the podcast or like every is like stolen from some other podcast. Oh, uh, gotcha. I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned. So some, I forget which one it is for everyone. Why is it for? I think it's from. I think I stole that from Philosophize This. Is that right? Why I don't know. I haven't listened to Philosophize. I'm Stephen he, he West. Went, he, went, he went wacky. I haven't really paid attention to what has he been doing. Well, he's just been going like on all the postmodernists because I mean he's a Marxist, like he's a, yeah. a full on Marxist at, at heart. Even though it, I don't know, I mean it's just his, 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 it was all these German guys whose names I can't pronounce. 